listening to the Companion Gun Dog Podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Geyer, and with me today is Stump, Captain Stump. Um, we recorded an episode together, uh, I guess episode before last, and uh, and we're going to get back to it today. Uh, we're going to probably make this a, a bit of a regular check-in with Stump since he and I are going to be working together in the fall um, and trying to get some dogs out west as we spoke about uh, in the last podcast. Stump, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Grayson. Good to hear from you, brother. Yeah, yeah, man. I appreciate you coming on again, and uh, and we're going to get into it. But um, yeah, also on today's episode, we're going to kind of be introducing uh, Stump's um, kind of new endeavors in in regards to media. Uh, so looking forward to some of that. Anything uh, anything exciting going on in your life besides that, man? You've been fishing a lot what's going on yeah yeah uh you know when weather will allow we've had a really crazy spring it's super windy and uh weather's just odd for south carolina this time of year um still enjoying it though because it's cool um but yeah and i'm working with uh the king cat tournament trail we're traveling across the country uh filming a show for the pursuit network um all around the the catfish tournament trail sponsored by uh, Johnny Marsh, Bass Pro Shop, Cabela's, little plug. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and we're fishing, and we got a litter of pups here. And so, uh, and when I'm traveling out after these tournaments, I've been taking a couple dogs on the road with me. And um, so, yeah, things are good. They're busy. So it's a busy time of year, and it's hot, tough for working dogs right now. So we're just uh, doing the best we can with dogs and having fun otherwise yeah tell me about it man this is um you know it's been a couple of years now but i quit uh completely quit doing bird work for the public at least during the summertime i'll still normally pull a few dogs out and do pigeon work and this year i've got one invitational prep dog navd invitational prep dog that's that's got to stay steady through the summer and unfortunately with that game, um, they, the invitational always happens in September, and it just uh, irks me to to no end. And I mean, I I understand they they try their best to keep everything out of the hunting season, right? And it's just good timing. And a lot of those folks aren't from down south, but uh, it's it's so miserable trying to keep a dog put together over the summer and, and continue progressing uh, in bird work when the cover is just wet and dense and it's thousand percent humidity and yeah well, do is cuss ah, well it is it is is brutal it's brutally hot and it's too tough to do it and the bugs and the snakes all <laughs> too bad um but it brings me to a point that i was going to say uh once we're talking about being on the road it's hard to condition a companion gun dog when you live in the southeast to be ready to hit montana in september when you can see, you know, high 70s, low 80s in the middle of the day in a hot, dry, arid, rocky, sandy soil. So it, it's a concern of mine that we get them so soft during the summer. Well, you know, I mean, what what I've started doing, at least with my own dogs, is I'm, I swim, I swim them hard every day. And, and I know that's not, uh, I know it's not a, you know, a good uh, kind of supplement to running them, especially 
working them on birds, but I figure it's the best I got. So I try to give everybody, um, you know, probably three or 400 yards of swimming hard every day. And, and I feel like they come, they get out of the back end of the summer really fit, but it's not, it doesn't translate completely for sure. Especially when you talk about that darn humid heat, or I mean, a dry heat you get out out west. It's so different. It's so different when you take them from here straight out to there and you put them on the ground. Yeah. It'd be 30 minute hour runs if your dogs aren't conditioned. So, oh, and their feet. That's yeah, enough. and their feet too. You got to run them, man. If you got a place where you can road them a little bit, you got a yeah. golf cart and a safe place to do that, that's a good idea. Um, I agree 100%. Yeah, last time I went, Montana, it's been a few years back, but I remember coming back through South Dakota. Um, it was nearly 100 degrees, and that was like late September. Um, it just they had a they had a hot spell, and it got it it was wild, man. So I, you know, you just you can't ever be too prepared, uh, have the dogs too conditioned, and be ready to put them down and pick them right back up and get them cool and get some water on them. That's yeah. a real important uh, thing. You know, another concern too, if there are folks that uh, and we'll talk more about it later i I got i jumped to the reminders uh just because we were leaning on it a little bit but uh i know you got an aversion clinic coming up snake aversion and uh, and that's a real concern out there um i was reluctant to go in the places that felt super snaky to me uh out there those rocky outcroppings where i felt like we were more likely to find shucker when those temperatures are high um i'm like yeah let's just keep them down here (laughs) <laughs> and I don't even know that I was correct uh, that, that those snakes wouldn't be just as uh, prevalent down there as they would up there. But every Western movie I've ever seen, one of those Rocky outcroppings held a rattler up there. That's good enough for me, man. I, <laughs> I, like, I, Western Diamondbacks scare me. Those, I, the, all those Western villains. It's that Mojave who's the, the bad sum of gun. Yeah, and I, was, I spent some time in Southern California training bomb dogs and uh, – and just there would be signs, you know, like you'd be hiking out in the middle of the desert and they'd be like high concentration Mojave Viper area. And, uh, yeah, we just turned around when we saw that. Yeah, man. So I'm sure I've gotten you off track of what you kind of had in <laughs> mind for us to go about. So we can. Well, I mean, yeah, today's pretty informal. And I reckon this is the way we'll keep it with you and me. I, you know, we'll let the, the conversation kind of uh, take a little bit of its own course. But there's some points I do want to hit. Um, you know, first and foremost, you said you got a litter on the ground. Uh, you know, we know it's French Britney's. Tell us a little bit about what you got going there. Yep. Uh, these dogs are off of uh, Fred Overby's dog, Sasquatch, and uh, my dog, Ruthie, who is a puppy off of your dog, Pete, and my dog, Eula. Yep. And um, they're six weeks now. They're exceptional, orange and whites. Uh, we like half the litter's wrong, half's clear and white. There are four females, two males. Um, they're developing nicely. We um, were fortunate to live in a in a neighborhood, and I have some good friends. One's here with us today. We're going to introduce them in a bit. Uh, Connell O'Brien. Uh, Connell has five kids, and my buddy Jeffers Gardner has five kids. Um, ranging from responsible to you better keep an eye on that one. And uh, and they all come over and handle the dogs several times a week and and help us with them if we're not here. So these puppies are as well socialized as you can get. Um, (laughs) 
Good. So, so they, they help us. Um, I think we touched on puppies a little bit last time and conditioning. I, I know yeah. you wanted me to mention this. Um, so some of the things we do with them starting from, uh, really when the day they're born is we handle them all daily, you know, you're keeping up with weights and making sure everybody's growing, making sure the mom's producing milk. We're feeding her up. Um, we're handling those pups. We're, um, there's a whole protocol for doing it. You can look it up. I won't bore y'all with the details, but we handle them and we put them in somewhat precarious positions for just a few seconds. And, uh, it, it supposedly builds some mental strength in them later on. So we do that. And, you know, that's real soft, gentle stuff that you do daily, but, it, but you're putting hands on the pups. So by the time they're this age, they're, they're coming to you willingly. They, they know how to nuzzle you already and nest in. Um, we do some sound conditioning with them too when we're feeding them. Uh, I just use the dog food bag and crackle it a little bit uh, when they first start feeding. And they're curious about the sound at first. And uh, and we just build it up until at this age, I let them start clamoring for food. They they know they're on a schedule. So I, I pavloved them. I ring the dinner bell. I thump the top of the dog food bowl and get them at the gate. And uh, I can come out popping that 50-pound Purina Pro Plan bag, and those pups are just clamoring for the food. You know, they're unaffected by loud noises at this point in an in a expected situation. So sure. um, that's just something, you know, the kind of stuff we try and do to them all the time so that when they go home with somebody, they've already got a really good foundation. Um, you know, we've stopped the biting and chewing and all that. And uh just trying to make a balanced dog and send them out to homes in a good way. Yeah. I mean, you know, personally, I, I, um, I'm a deep believer in exposing puppies to as much environmental stimulation as you possibly can. You know, whether we're talking loud noises, different textures, different smells, just different environments in general. And that way, hopefully when they, you know, when they leave uh, the nest, if you will, they're, it's it's not their first exposure to novel, you know, sensations or stimuli. Oh, exactly. And, we um, I'm sorry, I interrupt you, but we no, take we take at once they've had their first vaccinations, we uh we start introducing them to some different covers. We take them out. They ride in the dog box in the kennel. Uh, they have that experience with hay. They've been crated and slept. Um, we'll start housebreaking them. Everything we do if, if puppies in like just their 10 week program is setting them up for, for a really good, good life. They've got a great foundation with exposure to all that stimuli, scent, smells, different covers, a bird introduction, just dead bird or, uh, or a quail on a string, you know, for them to chase around or even in a cage, just building sure. a little drive in them. We work with retrieve a little bit. Um, you know, they don't know what they're doing exactly. They're just picking up something, carrying it around. But, uh, you know, that turns into something in a hurry at uh, 12 and 14 weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think and I think what whatever you can throw at them within reason, that's obviously, you know, not a bridge too far. All that sounds phenomenal. Um, but you said you mentioned you had a 10 week program. Is that right? Well, I like to hold them till 10. I'll allow clients um, and I kind of qualify them. 
Um, sure. You know, what do they want out of the dog? And I like to keep them to 10. That allows me three more weeks of observation and three more weeks of that stimulation that you're talking about. Um, you know, these kids are coming over. They're, they're noisy. They're wild. They're near about feral. Um, sure. And so these puppies, they, they, they've seen a good bit of what the world's going to throw at them in the first few months, uh, barring some something extraordinary. Um, so if I can keep them till 10, we'll do that. Um, we're considering starting, you know, we only make a couple of litters a year and we're already pretty dog heavy around here for, for us. Um, but we're considering doing a puppy program similar to what Emily at shotgun and short hairs does. Um, yep. she, she's advised me on it a bit and, uh, and keeping these pups a little bit longer and completing the house breaking and starting some of the informal hunting training. I would definitely, you know, I mean, and for those that can't tell, I mean, this is a, uh, uh, a real time conversation. This is not something we've, we've discussed moving forward, but I, I would certainly say that that's where the market demand is. You know, I think folks are any opportunity to, uh, uh, to avoid, you know, some of the stressors that come along with puppyhood and of course, give them a head start. I mean, you've got an environment, you've got the know-how, you've got the, um, resources to, to kind of give these pups a, a good start. So I would say, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and there are, there's certainly ideas on when to separate litters and things like that. Um, but you know, I, I, there's not a lot of raw data out there that, that we can draw on to know what's perfect. We, we got people's anecdotes over, uh, you know, over time. And, and personally, I think it's, you know, the proof's in the pudding and there's some, there's, especially from these last Pete Eula litters, a lot of hokum poke pups out there, um, you know, putting, putting their feet in the right places. If you will. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not locked on the 10 week thing. And that's why I say from seven to 10 is when we let them go. I feel like seven's long enough. Sure. And if you got a place where you're going to take it and continue that, do it. Um, yeah. and if you want me to hold on to it for three more, I'm happy to, I like having them around. Um, what I think is happening sometimes though, we're sending some of these dogs homes with, with to homes who they have their predetermined expectations. You're a professional trainer. I'm a hunter and I'm a breeder and I'm just a guy that learned the hard way, kind of how to manage dogs. And I still require a lot of help to get them, uh, steadied up. Right. Um, but we're sending these dogs home. Some of them are kind of high caliber and they're handful and they don't get the right stimulation and exercise and foundation. And they sort of run amok. And, yeah. and you don't want to have situations where it's not a good relationship, um, good partnership with the dog and family. So anything I can do to solidify that kind of foundation for the owner and the dog, I, I'd prefer to, to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, I got I picked up um, a new lab pup yesterday, and I think he's seven weeks. I, I'm pretty sure he is. I, I you, you can tell how much effort and thought I put into it when I when I'm getting my new pups. But you know, one thing, if I could get a puppy that was crate broke before that rascal came to my house, that would be worth its weight in gold. You know, it's it, it, uh, just to have one that you could put in the crate, was comfortable in there already, understood, um, 
how how to relax, be quiet, and it's time there, and then come out and go do its business and go back to normal. I mean, I would absolutely happily wait till what you know another month to get that from my breeder. Right, and after first shots, we start that with them. That starts yeah. in the outside kennel, and uh, and then we'll crate them in the evenings, and and we sort of read them too. We do it when it's easy to do it when when they're tired. Let them play in the yard, then bring them in and put them all in a, in a large dog crate together. They go to sleep together. Everybody's comfortable, good to go. So it's a it's a stress-free way of crate training where it just becomes a happy, safe place for them. So when they go home with you, they already know the crate. They're like, yeah, put me in there. I know what to do in there. It's interesting. I'm, I'm interested to see how, how all that plays out going forward. You know, something we haven't really uh, discussed, though, is, is maybe – you know, both of our involvement in the French Brittany community uh, too deeply. And um, for those that don't know, you know, how long have you had them stump? I guess it was Eula your first? Yep, Eula was my first, man. And I honestly, well, if, on, to be, tell you the truth, years ago when I was a young man and just getting out of the house, uh, early 20s, I had, you know, I had an affinity for bird dogs. I'd already owned several, and uh, but I was looking for something better. And there were Britneys for sale out in the country, seventy-five dollars a piece. And oh, I'll yeah. try, and, I'll try and keep this short. And uh, <laughs> I went out and got the bought one of those Britneys, and they were they were feral. I've used that word twice tonight, but Grayson, they had been <laughs> unsocialized. They were out there with some deer hounds back behind this guy's house. I finally got one caught up. It, it bit me. It peed on me. Um, but I was like, I can work, th- I can work him through it. And, um, it's, I couldn't work that dog through it. It took me about two weeks and he was just, he was lost. And I carried it back to the guy and I left with that same one and another one. It was just <laughs> as bad. <laughs> I can't remember that guy's name, but never buy a car from out there and live. It might be. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, so, and, and I didn't realize until I, I was looking for a dog. I'd been hunting woodcock over uh, flushers, and it wasn't working for clients. Um, sure. Thick covers. So I want a, a pointing dog. I don't remember if we talked about this last time or not. I, no, we didn't. And, I, you know, honestly, I don't think I've ever – I know you had a Springer at one point. but yeah, I, don't I had a couple Springers, and I had a lab that hunted woodcock. Um, but we, um, I was shopping for dogs, man. And you know, everything was short hair, short hairs. And, and they did, they looked great to me. And I saw where people were having some good success with them hunting and family wise. And, but it was a bigger dog than I wanted. I'd like the size of my Springers. Um, and the French Brittany came across my radar. I can't even tell you where. Um, and I started digging around. Oh, I was down in the forest hunting with my Springers, and I met a guy, and you've met him. He gave us a ride on the tailgate down there. That oh, sounds familiar. Richard uh, Cullerton, Mr. Richard Cullerton. Okay. And he and Jim Anders had worked together. Oh, and no he, knew, he knew Jim and fought me, and he had short hairs. And uh, I was talking, I was telling him I was considering – I'd seen these French Britneys and he said, call my friends, Jim and fight me, gave me their number. I reached out. They, uh, put me in touch with Dan parlor down in Somerville. 
And, uh, man, I got fired up for, for a dog. I went down there to Dan's and saw a couple, and he had a litter um, that we're all spoken for. But I went to meet him and see the kennel and all of that. And he, we got a tennis ball out, and three or four of those puppies uh, we put out on the ground. And, and they were just racing for the ball and racing back to you. And would I mean, these are little tiny little puppies now, six weeks old, and they would tumble you over on the return. <laughs> you know, just crash into you with the ball. And I'm like, holy cow, that's a bird dog. And um, so I put a deposit down and um, like six months later, maybe I got Eula and uh, she was the damnedest thing I'd ever seen. She was a, she was a handful, man. She would just run as hard and fast as she could with honestly no fear concern of what was in front of her or behind her and she would like look the other direction and just keep running full steam ahead and i was like this dog's gonna kill herself um and she tried to she ended up hurting her leg with that hard charger stuff when she was real young but sorry i wandered a bit but she started it all for me and i got her and um and i immediately wanted more so two years later i got another a year later another and Fast forward to now, we own six, possibly seven, and there's a litter of six here. So there's like 15 dogs around here right now. Well, I mean, that's, that's awesome, man. And, and, you know, I think it's I think it's neat that that's where you wound up. I know you'd had some pointers in the past. I've always meant to ask you about this. It just never, you know, we can't keep a conversation straight. I'm sure that the audience is learning that right now. Yeah. Um, well, but, uh, I was young when I got my first bird dogs, and I and I yeah. didn't have a clue. Birds were hard to find, getting harder to find. Um, I had hunted in my high school days with a buddy. His dad was a bird hunter. There were a couple, few older guys that led me to want to do this. And uh, but my first pointers were horseback trial dogs that were washouts, and, um, and and one of them was okay, the other not so good. And we killed some birds together. Um, but I, I just, I kind of do it all. I, I like to, I'm a wing shooter, man. Anything, ducks, doves, quail, anything with feathers. And so I was looking for one dog does it all by the time I got to the French Brittany. And after Eula, I was like, this is the most amazing animal I've ever seen in my life. She tops out at about 36 pounds. At six months old, she was retrieving Canadian geese out of the pond that weighed, you know, eight to 10 pounds. And she couldn't, she couldn't haul them up the bank uh, forward, so she'd get on the bank and grab them by the neck and drag them up the hill. And uh, <laughs> I remember, I don't know, I don't know how old Eula was when I first got my hands on her, but I remember being thoroughly impressed and and doing a deep dive on her background because I wanted more of that. She's hard driven. Um, no, does not mean no to Eula. Um, she can take <laughs> any kind of pressure you'll give her. She is unbothered by it. Um, if you were, if you correct Eula, Eula just thinks I, I need to figure out a way to do that without getting corrected. You know, she's not sure. like, oh, I need to stop doing that. Um, well, I mean, I would call that uh, a good training dog. That's, that's what you're that's what you're aiming at no, no 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 i'm saying like flushing birds on her own she still to this day you'll go on a woodcock hunt and eula will wander off and come back with that glazed look in her eyes and you know she's just going and ripped her to her three 
<laughs> and then she'll come back and get in the hunt. <laughs> yeah, I, I can appreciate that, man. And, and, you know, we, you know, we haven't, we hadn't, I don't think dug too deep into this, but you know, Yula being a parlor dog, uh, as far as I know, that line was heavy in Irish blood. And, and I think that's something we've lost in the French Brittany. And I'm not sure there's too many people out there that are, um, number one, probably interested, but number two, ha- understand that, that, you know, for a few generations, uh, we were importing dogs from Ireland that were doing really well over here. And, I know. And, and, and uh, it's hard to, to find. Right? Yeah. They were gritty, gritty dogs. I mean, when I think of the dog, my favorite dogs in the French Britneys, I love, um, I love Fred dog, Fred's dogs. I love Italian dogs. I mean, Atos is, is a big player in my kennel. Um, you know, and obviously there's, there's plenty of great French dogs, uh, but there was an era where we were getting these Irish dogs and they were just tough, you know, could handle pressure, loved cover. Unlike what you consider in most point and breeds, I, I thought of them more like a, like a spaniel, um, in a lot of ways. And, and, uh, and I'm, I'm worried that that's been lost and it's something that I'm trying to hang on to. And, you know, one thing I think with using Eula heavily in my kennel, Ella has, has quite a bit of that Irish blood as well. And I've spoken to other trainers that acknowledge it and, and find it valuable, but, uh, or, or breeders. Um, but I don't know what we're going to do moving forward to keep that kind of gritty EB around. Well, well, I've, I've, I've uh, located a half-sister of Eula, and we're going to go back to her. Um, we haven't decided exactly who yet, but we got a couple ideas. And that should pull some of that back again and give us a chance to maybe get it. You know, I don't know. That part is nature. But I'll tell you, with the, with the aspect that you mentioned in training these dogs, they change the way I train. They don't take hard discipline um, well. Uh, even the even the gritty ones. Uh, well, now Eula, yeah. she trains like a, a Chesapeake, um, but she's an <laughs> exception. <laughs> sure. She's no, ex- no, I understand what you're saying. I mean, EBs have a reputation for being quote unquote soft. And, right. Well, they're, know, they're agree, prima donnas. You know, they squeal well, sometimes right. at the slightest pain, but they all say that they're they're smart. They don't want that pain again. They've learned quickly, and and they're bold yeah. dogs. And uh, but you're right, the Eula Olin, um, what. Gosh, I hate to say this because this, I mean, this is kind of a, a very general statement, but my roan dogs break the cover like a Labrador hunting pheasants. You know, they're, they're, yeah. they hunt them like flushers. If you put them in the thick stuff, they still point their birds, but they hit yeah. it hard. That's, that's what I'm getting at. And I think that's, I think that's their, you know, when we talk field work, that's an important attribute to me. And there's not many pointing dogs out there that, that have that. And, and there's not many EBs out there that have that, you know, a lot of dogs prefer to stay on the outside of the cover and win their birds and, and kind of tiptoe, you know, uh, tiptoe around. And, and, and that's important because you need cautious dogs. But, you know, one of my favorite, my favorite pheasant dog I've ever owned personally is Crockett. And that's a Yule of Sun. And that rascal, I mean, he, he, he's not the best at any other type of bird, but, he can certainly get to a pheasant and pin it. And he has that effect on a pheasant. He just knows how to keep it on the ground. And that's a really neat quality, but he goes where they are. Well, he had an afternoon in South Dakota where he had about 600 encounters in about 45 minutes. <laughs> I remember so. you telling me that. 
for those that don't know, I got Crockett a little later in life and Stump started with him. Yeah, he definitely uh, did not have uh, the skill of keeping him on the ground early in life. No, no, he could make him fly, though, sure enough. <laughs> he could. Well, I'm, I'm glad we had that little uh, kind of trip down the EB lane. You know, it's it's a it's a moving target, kind of producing that perfect bird. And um, I'm not sure there's a lot of folks out there talking about breeding and what they take into account. But so much of it is a guessing game. So much of it is, is throwing things at the wall and hoping they're going to stick and doing your best and and trying to produce that perfect type of dog you're looking for. And, you know, and for me personally, I think the you know, having that great pet and that companion dog is really important. So I, I want a dog that is uh, handler oriented, um, affectionate by nature, but it, none of that matters if they're not giving me what I want in the field. And, uh, and, and the special thing about the type of EBs I like is that toughness, that grittiness, that willingness to challenge cover a natural retrieve and a little bit of point tossed in there to help, you know, but, um, that's my job as a trainer is to, is to kind of polish that up. Well, and I want that as a breeder, and and then I want them to go to a home where that foundation is already solid and it not get lost in the translation. I think there are opportunities in these dogs' lives. Um, so I try not to let mine bark. This is just an example. And uh, I do that by screaming hush a whole lot, and my neighbors probably <laughs> would rather hear the dogs bark than me yelling hush. But even with the puppies, if there's a situation where those puppies are barking, I try and go ahead and stop it right now so that that barking doesn't become something that that puppy is used to sitting out there doing. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it doesn't sense. become an ingrained moment. And then a, a little bit of retrieve. I feel like I always explain it to my friends as there are moments. And it, I see this with kids too. This is just, and I, I speak well below my level of intelligence on this, but there are opportunities to open doors, uh, permanently there are opportunities to open windows and then there are opportunities to close doors um by closing doors i mean like shocking scaring a puppy and creating a gun shy dog uh you can avoid that in most instances sometimes a natural occurrence will make it happen but you can also build that stuff and you teach that puppy to start learning early and those doors just continue to open and if you close them and you create that dog all day long and you don't give it its time and you don't stimulate it mentally and physically, well, that's when you run into dogs that come to you and then are a problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And we've this is something we've we've covered at length on the podcast is, you know, what do you do when you get your puppy? You know, and, and that and for me, it's ritualize that lifestyle and let them know what a crate is, make sure they're comfortable in there, but also get them out and carry them everywhere you can, you know, and, and if and and you know, as breeders, we're concerned with what we're producing by nature. We have whatever influence in the time we get with them, um, that we've got. And, and we have to believe that that matters or why put the effort in, you know, so nobody, I mean, there's, that's, that's always the question is nature versus nurture. What, you know, what weighs more heavily and all you can do is do your best at both. Oh, that's right. And I mean, and there's then like we said, there's no perfect situation. Um, but there's there's genetic, there there's environmental, and there's a lot you can do environmentally to to build desire and prey drive. 
to build retrieve, to build recall. You can do all that. It's a lot easier to do in a young puppy than it is in a six month old that's been crated all day. And you try and teach him that when you've let him out for 15 minutes after work in the evening. Sure. Um, I'm sorry. I, I've, I, I know I, we have a other topics. <laughs> well, we, and we will. We'll get to them. I think that was important. I enjoyed this conversation. And if, okay, all right. you know, I'm sorry. That's I why like I drag you off track. No, nah, it's good. I, yeah, I mean, you, yeah, you don't do as good a job as Emily does at keeping me keeping me on track. But that's that's not what this episode's about. We're you know we're here to uh, to kind of spitball a little bit, and I think we're doing okay with it. So, um, yes. so I, the idea being, hey, you bred to one of Fred's dogs. One of Fred. When we say that, we're talking about a, an Italian dog, a graceful dog, fast dogs in the field to Eula, who is a gritty dog, a tough dog. We'll we'll go anywhere to to get a bird, and maybe not what you might consider as graceful as one of the Italian type of dogs. Oh, not um, at all. Or as maybe as uh, confirmationally, uh, and I don't mean this like she's not. She to me, she's a perfect EB in terms of confirmation, but she doesn't have those um, that 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 look. If it makes right, sense. oh yeah, yeah. She, there's nothing. Uh, gallant about her she's uh <laughs> but if you look on the if you look on the cbus website that little uh pencil diagram of what the dog should look like like yeah she fits in that thing and there's nothing pretty about it either um, <laughs> well that's it but man i sure do i mean to me those pellegrinotti dogs are my favorite to look at um but i my favorite to hunt over are always the ellas and the eulas of the world those those pushy dogs that they do what's needed to bring game to the bag that's what we have them for so. well i value fred's uh, opinion and and the history of the breed enough and and so i can sort with him on what i do and i i think fred's pretty lenient and and amuses me and allows me to 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 uh play a part in what he spent a lifetime doing but you know yeah. in this day and age and the way breeding goes you can't develop a line now and you can't do it on your own you can't do it without help I think it's That's important right. that breeders work together and make sure that we've got healthy dogs. And uh, most of what I've been doing have been outcrossings, um, which don't necessarily breed you typical type of dogs, although you and Pete uh, put pretty good squeeze to them. Um, we got, yeah, we got a little bit of Irish on top of Irish there with Ella over Eula. Yeah. Um, and then going back to Fred stuff, I think is a perfect you know, if you think of that Italian blood as, as spice, you know, and, and that's a, and, and Fred has a very well-defined line. Well, say Fred, we're talking about, uh, our friend Fred Overby, who is a breeder out of Georgia with, with the kennel, um, gosh, I'm going to butcher this, Damasta Patala. Yeah, or Lador. Yeah, and Lador I, I, is that, yeah. His kennel name is Patala Power. Uh, Lador. Yeah, the Lardor line comes straight out of France and is an, and is an extension of the Pellegrinotti line, which is okay. a, an older Italian line. Um, well, you know, those dogs are, have great chest, great slope, you know, nice oh, yeah. heads, beautiful color. They're clear white and orange. And, uh, and they, honestly, when I first researched Eula and, and the picture of uh, Pellegrinotti with, uh, like, I don't know, he's got seven nine dogs on the lead in front of him i'm like oh yeah i'm doing that 
And that's it. And so, and I think that's, and I mean, that is, that's what we're all aiming at to get to confirmationally. And I, and I would, there's nothing I'd rather hunt over, um, out West or, you know, or in Georgia, uh, especially. And I mean, he, and his dogs are accomplished on every type of game bird. They're great. Um, and it's they're not beautiful. to say they're lacking. Yeah. And it's not to say they're lacking in any place. It's, it's that when I think of, yeah, it, there's a there's something to be said for that kind of spaniel type grittiness that Yula brings to the table, and I think it's a great combination. Uh, so I'm excited about Sasquatch. I guess we can uh, we can get ourselves out of that hole. We we've been yeah, chatting we're about it, there. Think, yeah, yeah, but I think that's a great one, and I think it leaves room down the line for all sorts of fun stuff. And um and so I hope I get to see uh, and get my hands on some of these puppies in the near future. So. Mm-hmm. What you what other they, things? No go, <laughs> no, go ahead. No, what? No, I, no what these pups, these pups are coming to you. You'll be seeing right, them. Well, on hopefully. So, so I guess we we we've kind of touched on your background a bit, and we know you've had springers and stuff. At some point, I'd really like to talk to you more. We won't do it tonight about your experience uh, experiences with flushing dogs on woodcock because I think. Um, I think there are people out there. I, th- I think woodcock are becoming a more popular resource in the southeast. Yep. And and I think there are people that are going to be spending more time hunting them with flushing dogs. And I, and I think it's something, just an interesting topic to cover. But I, I don't go down that all night. But I, I it's something that in the future I want to touch on. What I really want to get to is what you got going on. Um, so on the the dog aspect of things, um, I have a a friend here with me. We'll introduce him tonight. He'll be involved with this. Uh, that Connell, Connell O'Brien's here with us. I'll tell him hello. Hey, Grayson. Stop. What's up? Hey, buddy. (laughs) Connell's going to be involved with us. We're, uh, we filmed a pilot episode for a, a show called Backroads and Bird Dogs, and we're going to do a podcast that coincides with it that'll kind of overview the show and discuss uh, what we talk about, uh, you know, each episode. The show, of course, will be 30 minutes and won't show everything, so we'll discuss more in depth what that is. But um, it's based around, it's a companion gun dog show, man, and it's going to be based on the the dogs primarily and then uh, their relationships, the people that they take me to meet and the back roads we travel to go and see those guys, uh, different kennels, uh, different friends we've made, uh, just through dogs alone. And, uh, and over the course of it, we'll discuss a lot of conservation, voluntary restraint, um, promoting, uh, regrowth of habitat and, you know, just responsible, ethical outdoor stuff, but we're going to have a good time doing it. We're going to drink beer. We're going to cook in the evenings. Um, I've got a veterinary friend, Ryan James from Hartsville Animal Hospital. He'll be guesting on there, giving us uh, the right medical advice for the dogs. You know, we'll, we'll discuss field, field stuff for dogs, uh, traveling with dogs, just like all the stuff you need to know to road trip. If you're going to travel with dogs, how to read your maps, um, how to cook a chicken or pheasant perlo, just good times, man. Back roads and bird dogs. That's that's the focus of it, and the relationships between dogs and people, and how they bring well, us me, together. 
Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for that, man. I think it's, um, you know, there's a, there's, uh, there's more media in in every place today than there ever has been. But it's also it's a wonderful time to be. You know, I remember, man, when I was getting into this stuff, when I was, especially when I was getting into dogs, you know, it was the earliest days of the internet and it, you know, it was like you had to know a secret handshake to figure out how to do anything. And today there's so much information available and, and it's, and, a, and there's room for more and, a, and a, a, it's an exciting time. And I think of all those kids out there in their early twenties through their, you know, early fifties, if they're, they're getting into this for the first time and, and, um, they've got so, they've just got so much more available to them to, to get started and, and to be successful early. What, however they, however you define success, you know, right. Oh, exactly. Uh, and that's kind of what we want to do is what, you know, I think we may have discussed it last time, but the graduation of the hunter, when you're young, you want to kill your first one. Then you want to kill uh, a limit. Then you want to kill a whole bunch of you want to kill a limit every time you go and you, and you reach that. And then as you get older, you, you see that, hold on, the fun part wasn't all this killing and, and the fun part was the hunt, the pursuit. And once you learn to find it, um, so what we'll focus on, you know, is I want to help people not have to hit the same hurdles that I did learning all this stuff on the road, but I'm not hot spotting either. I'm not telling you how to go kill a bunch of birds. That's, yeah. it, it's not a priority for us. It really never has been after my youthful bloodlust. Um, so what it's about is just getting out there, enjoying it, being respectful of the landowners, the communities you go to and, uh, you know, making new friends and getting dogs out to do what they're meant to do. No, yeah. you, made, you made a good point there too, Grayson. It's just, I, I'm a, I'm a guy that's, that's got, uh, very little experience in the world of bird hunting. And I, I came upon stump and he was just a, a guy that was super into his dogs, into hunting, into, into teaching. So to to be able to to jump in with uh with stump and some of his friends just experience this world of people who are so eager to share about about their dogs about the habitat about what you're what you're going to hunt it's just been a uh awesome experience and i think this show is going to be a lot about a lot about that just helping other people know it's just it's not that hard just just get in with the right people and sure and, uh, enjoy the ride yeah. And I mean, I think of my, my best memories, you know, either in the field or associated with it. Some of them are with you stump. I mean, and just, uh, yeah, I think about, you know, um, processing some woodcock guts and, and trying to do things that way or, but, but, you know, some things are lost, you know, we, we've lost a little bit with all of this media, which is the figuring things out for yourself. And, and it sounds like, you know, what you got in mind is giving people enough to get excited about it, but also it's not a go, go find it on your own. You know, those days when you're in the field and you haven't been dropped a pin on an Onyx map by somebody, you've kind of stumbled into a place you never expected to find a bird in the first place. And then all of a sudden they're just getting up everywhere. That, those are your, those are the magic moments, you know? Yeah, man, I'm a, I'm a fishing guide by, by trade that's what i do for a living uh or it's one of the things i do and and when i first started guiding fishing and i'm happy for all my clients to hear this in a public 
confessional now. When I first started, I would carry these people straight to the fish. And I wanted to catch 20, you know, I wanted double digit fish every day. Yeah. And um, I, I saw my resource change over the course of the last 20 years. And, sure. uh, and, and I saw the amount of effort people were willing to put into it and their level of expectation um, for that sort of thing. So I changed my whole um, marketing plan. And I tell if anyone calls me now and says, hey, we've got a church social and we need 100 fish, I'm like, I'm not your guy. <laughs> um, you know, I'm catching release and I, I see the effect of, of technology on it. Um, boats, motors, spot like trolling, oh, uh, gosh. you know, you, EPS. You, I mean, just so many things that make it easier for people to do the magazines, the, the information that's out there is insane, man. And our grandfathers had none of that. They went fishing and, uh, yeah. and that's the discovery part of it. Without that, I don't want it. Don't take me straight to it. I think, I think that's a, that's a wonderful point. And I think that's, you know, maybe, you know, kind of the direction to head in here as we, as we wind her down is just, is what is, what is it to us? You know, and not success if you don't work for it. Well, and, and it's, you know, it's not magic if it doesn't, you know, if you, there's, it, I think we're at a point in time where we can say, man, we, you know, you can go fishing with, what do they call that thing? Live view. Yep. yep. You got, you know, live view and you got a, a depth, I, I call it a fish finder or whatever. And, you know, it's, we're not far off of that now with, with birds either. You know, I mean, I can easily have somebody drop me a pin or you can look at Facebook and I do it all the oh, time. Oh yeah. Look at migratory patterns on the radio. Uh, yeah. There's so, so many things. <laughs> Yeah, I probably. I see people post pictures of, uh, and I can look at the picture, and I know from the tree line they're sitting in the middle of the woods, and I can see a rock and a tree line, and I go, I know exactly where that person is. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And the same and, with uh, Mark, uh, with with the marsh down here with fishing. You can look, y'all. Yeah. I know where that is. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I mean, to 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 everybody else, it's a completely, um, you know, innocuous background. Uh, uh, you know, but for those of us that have put the time in or the effort in, you go, yeah, man, I, I completely expected people to find stuff there. And now it's been posted all over the internet. And, um, and, and not to say there's anything wrong with that. That's the world we live in today. No. It's well, just, and, and let's talk about the other side of it. You know, let's, let's not bash that. Do it. If that's the way you want to do it. I don't care. Sure. But I've spent years riding back roads, dirt yeah. roads, you know, getting stuck in the mud, uh, in the rain, drinking beer with my buddies, getting out and walking in that mess and trying a hundred different spots until we figured out, oh, they're in the Aspens or, oh, yeah. they're in the hardwoods, you know, until that you remind, get out yeah. and walk. You don't, you don't know that. You can look at all the maps in the world you want to. And that completely reminds me of, of uh, our trip to Minnesota a few years back when, you know, we drove – we just kept driving and driving and looking at these maps online and everything else. We were going to dial everything in perfect. And you said it to me. You're like, man, look at everything we're driving past. <laughs> <laughs> we're sitting all day chasing maps and grouse are running across the road in front of us. <laughs> yeah, they're blowing <laughs> off the side. We got 30 more miles to get to the cutover. <laughs> yeah, and it's just, it's, yeah, I mean, it's and, and that. Up there, you can't walk a cutover up there. No, no. Nah, and it's same anywhere. You can't walk a you can't walk a cut over anywhere. 
you know, you, you'll go find birds there, but it's knowing how to approach it. And of course, are they wonderful places to work? They absolutely are. But between cutovers, there's plenty of micro terrain. There's plenty of cover changes. There's birds and it's learning how to find them. You know, the only way you're going to get that experience, the, the knowledge is through the experience. And that's, and that's where the magic is. And it's not in the finding the birds. It's in those moments where you sit in the cab of your truck with your buddy having a good laugh. Um, you know, and, and the, the, the getting out and chasing the dogs is, is, is a big part of it, but it's not all. No, well, I mean, exactly. And that's what back roads and bird dogs are showing. Connell will be a big part of that. Y'all, y'all get to meet him more. He's going to tune in when we do our podcast, Connell. Um, he's not entirely new to this at this point. Uh, he, he came on board, you know, you get a lot of guys, uh, and I won't keep you long with this either that, that come on and hop. Oh, I want to go. I want to go. And they just want to get in the back seat and ride. And then you carry them halfway across the country and they're like, Oh, we've got to walk that far, you know, and that kind <laughs> of nonsense. Well, Connell, Connell took shotgun and took over navigation and map reading, which is critical to me. Sure. <laughs> um, I, I need that guy in my passenger seat and I seldom have him. Um, if not, yeah. I can do it, but there's a whole lot of cussing going on. I wouldn't know. I have no clue what you're talking about. And a lot of times I'll just pull over and just get out and go hunt <laughs> wherever I am versus trying to drive across the County. Yeah, um, sounds like a familiar story. So Connell got right in there and he picked up on it. And he picked up on natural woods navigation with the sun and stuff in Michigan. So I'm like, bro, you want to come back again? <laughs> uh, and so we become fast friends with that. And uh, he owns a poodle pointer. Um, and a French Brittany. And, oh, yeah. And a French Brittany uh, that he got from us. She's got a, a rare heart condition, um, honey. But she's a firecracker. Um, anyways, I, I want to speak to Connell. He didn't get in on this one tonight very much but he'll be around more and more so yeah you guys yeah. got to sit and listen and learn that, that's what that's what it's about see what i mean isn't he a keeper <laughs> that's it that's it so so yeah man i guess i guess it's as you know i'm i'm excited i'm excited for what's coming this year uh you know we're going obviously we're always trying to figure out when we can get together in the woods and um sometimes we hit it just right sometimes we miss it uh, but I'm sure this coming season we've got a lot of a lot of good woods time ahead of us. I know I've got a few clients that are hoping to send some dogs with you. Um, you got dates on the books for what your plans are for hunting? I've, I've got them uh, softly mapped out right now, Grayson. I'm not ready to share them. Uh, okay. I went with you off of this thing, and, and we can start sure. looking. Some of them are going to be a couple of quick ones that may not even make sense. Um I've had a tournament schedule change. This kind of got my fall a little bit wonky. There's going to be some coming and going. Um, and gotcha. I'm looking at logistics, but I just don't know exactly how to work that out right now. But there, there will be a long trip in the fall starting in, I think, late October. Uh, okay. Mid to late October. And then I'm going to be gone. And then uh, January, I'd say shortly after Christmas, after first of the year, I'm going to go west again, um, probably for most of January. All right. Well, that'll, you know, 
hopefully folks that need to get their dogs on the road listening, they can holler at me and we'll try to get something lined up. If you need to get your dog out there and then birds, um, something I haven't dropped on the podcast yet to this point, I don't think is we've set dates for that St. Hubert trial. All right. So I'm hoping to have you guys out there. That'll be December 2nd and 3rd. So if you can be there, plan on it. Uh, I'll be there. Anybody, I'll be there. All right. Anybody else interested in doing that, give me a holler. But I think I think this is as good a place as any to stop, man. I think we'll just – let's try to make this regular, maybe every other week or once a month. Just check in, see what you got going on, see where the show's headed, see what your uh, – if your schedule ever comes together like my own. Right. They never, they never seem to, but we always – are willing to make adjustments last second, willing to get dogs in and people in. Well, with hunting and traveling, you that you got to kind of be ready for that. Um, yeah. But, but as always, Grayson, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, sure. We'll check in with you. We're kind of in a holding pattern with back roads and bird dogs right now. Um, okay. Finish full editing on this last show and, and get it out. But I think what we'll look at is probably YouTube, to begin with and uh we've seen some interest from a couple of different other outdoor networks but i don't know there's logistics to work out on that and that's going to take us a minute um i'll i don't want to i'll refrain from too many opinions but what i will say is i think youtube's where we're at now as a as a culture so there's so so many different opportunities, but YouTube's a, a heck of a platform. So I I'm know, and you dial up what you want up, and that's what yeah. I like about it. You don't have to watch any nonsense or bullshit. <laughs> well, and and what we we need to really talk about putting Connell in charge of this thing. So it's more smoothly. <laughs> oh no, I, I, we may have to have two different versions of it. <laughs> but i look forward to seeing you boys thank you very much for being on with me and uh and we'll check in with you before too much longer man good all right with you, talk to you soon buddy all right y'all take care all right. See Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation, to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.